This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area on center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a Twilight Doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and this week on the Lost Ballparks podcast, I'm joined by a member of the Minnesota Twins Hall of Fame, Ken Herbeck. Bases loaded, two out, bottom of the sixth, Twins lead by one. And Herbeck hits a high drive to deep center field. Mickey goes back, Twins Herbie finished his 14-year big league career with 1,749 hits, 293 home runs, a lifetime 282 batting average, and was a two-time world champion, 1987 and 1991, winning both rings and playing all 14 years for the team that he grew up loving, the Minnesota Twins. Ken Herbeck, thanks for doing this, man. How are you? All right, good, Mike. Well, listen, let's jump right into it. The first thing I want to ask you is, have you ever been to fellow Minnesota Twins Hall of Famer Tony Oliva's house? Have you been there before? Oh, yeah. Because I had him on in season three, episode six, and he said, Mike, you have to come to my house in Minnesota. He said, I've got, it's like a hall of fame here. You know, someday you have a chance you want to stop over and see all my, all the place. I got a hall of fame here in the house. Oh my gosh, I would love it. I don't lie to you. I got a mini hall of fame here in the house. Tony, uh, you know, he was my idol growing up because I watched him here as a kid when I was living in Minnesota, when I was born and raised here, so. My first jersey I ever had, T-ball, I put a number six on it because Tony was my hero. And then I ended up playing for the Twins, and Tony ends up being our hitting instructor in the minor leagues. And then he was our hitting instructor in the in the big leagues. And uh, so Tony and I have become really good friends and uh, with his family and what have you. But yeah, I've been over at Tony's a few times. It's, you know, Tony's got stuff from, you know, back in the early 60s in this place, I'm sure. But uh, he's Mr. Twin. He's Mr. Baseball here in Minnesota, and he's a super guy. We actually went, my girlfriend and I drove. Out to, took a motor home and drove out to uh, Cooperstown this year to uh, watch him get inducted into the Hall of Fame. So something I wanted to do, and not only because Tony was my idol, but because he's such a great friend and great for Twins baseball. You grew up a couple miles from Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota, so close that I think you would often ride your bike to the ballpark. So I'm guessing right. that that was the site of the first game you ever attended. And how old were you, and what do you remember about that day? You know, I was probably six, seven years old, maybe the first time I went. It was with mom and dad, I'm sure. My mom and dad were Twins fans. My mom, more than anybody, she had the radio on all the time uh, listening to them. The lineup today for the Twins at shortstop, Zoil Versailles. In center field, Joe Nosek. In right field, Tony Oliva. Batting fourth and playing third, Harmon Killebrew. Dad would take us to the ball games once in a while and, and uh, go with a couple buddies would jump along in the car and we'd go watch the Twins game. What I remember most about, and I tell this to everybody I talked to you about Met Stadium, was the grass was so green and the and the dirt was so black. I remember they think if you ask a lot of guys that played there and you know back in the day and, and nowadays the fields are so well manicured and everybody's I don't even know if there's dirt. There's more diamond dry on the fields, I think, than anything. But it just seemed like it was black dirt. When you slid, you got dirty. And But I just always remember the green grass, 
and the black dirt, you know, and of course, as a kid, you envision yourself playing out there at some time or another. And luckily enough, I, did, I got a chance to play at the end of uh, the end of 1981, right before they uh, closed it up and opened up the dome. Your favorite place to sit at Met Stadium was in the left field bleachers, right? Right. Yep. Yep. We used to go out and a couple of buddies of mine, we used to ride our bikes on, I think they, uh, Monday nights was seniors night or something. Seniors got in for a buck. And I think if you were under 16 or something, you also got in for a dollar. And we'd buy left field bleacher seats and sit out there and chase uh, any kind of balls, you know, for home run and sometimes get there early enough for batting practice. Of course, we didn't get to see the twins hit because they never opened it up that early, but the opposing team and we'd run out there and, and try to uh, catch as many balls or get as many balls as we could as kids. Boy, at one time in my life that I ever sat in a box seat any place, most of the time was out in the left field bleachers. It's funny. I think you, if you talk to a lot of players today and ask them where they honed their talent, they tell you that it started playing 12 months a year in travel ball. But that was not the case with you. You learned the game and specifically how to hit playing with the Myers brothers in their backyard. Can you explain that? <laughs> the Myers brothers. How do you, how do you scrape that up? Yeah. Um, we had a good block of kids where I live and, uh, my brother was a couple of years older than me. Then we had the Myers brothers. There was three of them. Uh, one was my same age and the other two were older. Then we had the Gilbertson brothers who was the three boys there in that family. And then we had, a couple other kids on the block so we could we could field a pretty good team but we uh, we played a lot of wiffle ball in the backyards of both the Myers place they had a pretty good place to play my backyard was a good place to play ball we were always changing stadiums I guess is what you could say changing <laughs> yards but we call it you know different stadiums of course and uh, you know mom and dad didn't care about the grass uh, as, as Harmon Killebrew's favorite saying when his mother looked out on the field his dad said hey guys you're killing the grass and she said we're not raising grass here we're raising kids so <laughs> Um, there was a permanent home plate, first base, second base, and third base spot in, in pretty much everybody's backyard that we played because we, we wore them out. I and mean, look, if you could hit a wiffle ball, if you've never played wiffle ball before, you can make the ball dance and pretty much do whatever you want. And you kind of learned if I could hit that, I could hit anything. Exactly. Uh, you know, they talk about down in Puerto Rico, too, or, or, or Mexico, they, the kids would hit with sticks and they'd throw bottle caps or whatever. And uh, that's why those guys can hit because they uh, they tune their eye into hitting something so small and fast. And, and same thing with hitting a wiffle ball. It's tough. Yeah. Rod Carew was on this podcast in season one talking about playing with his friends down in Panama. They would get bottle caps and broomsticks and they would actually write on the broomstick names of their favorite players. Yeah, so I had Jackie Robinson on one, and um, Ted Williams on one, and Roy Campanella on the other one. No wonder he became the hitter that he became. <laughs> yeah, go figure, huh? If you can hit one of those, you can you can hit anything. But uh, no, that's definitely where I learned the game and learned to have fun at it because not only my parents, but the Myers' parents uh, and everybody else in the neighborhood's parents let us play. And, you know, same thing with playing hockey in the driveway. I remember one time my dad watching us out the driveway playing hockey and somebody wound up, took a slap shot. We just used a kind of a spongier ball. We never used a puck in the driveway, but somebody knocked one right through the garage window and shattered the window. My dad just, you know, everybody took off. They thought my dad was going to be mad. I remember with him sitting his arms on the windowsill, looking out and just smiling and laughing because, uh, you know what? So what? We broke a window with kids, but the kids were out there having fun. And, and, uh, I guess that's kind of how I got the love of the game playing in the neighborhood because like I said, our parents, everybody's parents didn't care about what we were doing or what we were wrecking or whatever. We were out having fun and playing a game. What a great story. So out of high school, you get drafted by your hometown team, the twins. And the way it happens, 
I, I can't see this happening today. Smokey T. Walt was a, a concession vendor at Old Met Stadium, and his son was, what, the same age as you? Yeah, I don't know if he was the same age or uh, he might have been a year younger or a year older. I can't remember. I, you know, I knew Smokey after I got to the game and stuff. But, uh, yeah, he played for, I think his kid played for Lincoln, and I was at Kennedy. We had three high schools here at the time, Kennedy, Jefferson, and Lincoln, and his kid played at Lincoln. And, yeah, we were playing against those guys one time, and apparently he was in the stands watching us play, and, and he had mentioned to the Twins front office that they should come over and take a peek at this Herbeck kid who was playing against his kids. So I think that's kind of how it started. Pretty incredible from a concession vendor, you know, that that, (laughs) that's crazy. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So by 1981, you're playing a ball for the twins in Visalia, California, making something like $500 a month. That year, you hit 379 with 27 homers, 111 RBIs and only 121 games. And on August 22nd, you walk into the clubhouse and your manager, Dick Phillips, wants to see you. You're thinking what? That he maybe you get promoted to double A, right? Um. Yeah, or either that or I was going to catch Hex or something because we had a pretty good group of guys out there. We partied a little bit. Maybe I was going to get a little hack or something from the party or something that we were at. But uh, no, yeah, I, you know, not just myself, but boy, we had four or five guys on that team that were having fantastic years. Our team was doing great. I guess I wasn't even thinking about getting called up even at that time of the year. I think we were just so excited by the way our team was going and I, you know, I was concentrating on what I had to do. I wasn't, you know, I think nowadays... The guys are constantly looking or people are seeing online or whatever, this or that, that this guy's doing good. They're probably going to call him up. There was no talk about anybody getting called up back then. We were playing the game and trying to win ball games for our team in Visalia. And, yeah, like I said, I walked in the walked in his office and he told me Billy Gardner called and they want you to start in Yankee Stadium on Monday night, which would have been the 24th of August. Yeah. Here it is a Monday night. You're in the lineup for the Twins. You're 21, right? Right. 21 years old, playing first base at historic Yankee Stadium. And for contrast, I mean, <laughs> think about this for a second. You've just left this tiny little ballpark in Visalia, and now you're playing in one of the most historically significant stadiums in baseball history. Right. It was all kinds of uh, stuff shooting around in my brain, of course. The two top things that I think I remember most was I finally made it. I didn't know when I was going to make it, if or, or even if I was going to make it, but I was going home playing for the Twins, I was going back to my, you know, my home city. You know, I'd played in Elizabeth in Tennessee rookie year, and I played in Wisconsin Rapids, and I, I played in Visalia, California, and of course down in spring training down in Florida, so I was never in, uh, around home at all, and I got a, I knew if I made it to the big leagues that I would get a chance to play at home, and, and I love playing at home because I know my mom loved watching me play, and, and dad as well, but also at that same time in 81, my father was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, and yeah, here I am getting called up and going to play in Yankee Stadium and standing on first base where Lou Gehrig played for so many years. So there was uh, there was all kinds of different thoughts going on in my head that night. And at some point in the game, Reggie Jackson makes it to first base. And do you remember what he said to you? Yeah, he said, uh, yeah, how do, you pro- how do you pronounce that name or something? He looked at the back of your jersey and was like... Right. How do you say that? Exactly. And, uh, of course, I was. I just said, you know, it's pronounced Herbeck. And I called him Mr. Jackson, too. So I was trying to be polite. In 1981, Brooklyn Dodger legend Johnny Padres is the pitching coach for the Twins. He famously right. threw the final out to win the 1955 World Series. And there, I think there's a statue of Padres and Campanella commemorating that historic moment in Cooperstown. But back to that first game at Yankee Stadium in 81, you're heading to the bat rack in the 12th inning. And Padre stops you, and what does he say to you? 
Well, he says it's getting late, and I, I you know, it, <laughs> Yankee Stadium is known. You start. We usually start at eight o'clock. I think at Yankee games are eight oh five, and it was usually pretty close to midnight by the time we got over with most of the games and of course we're in the 12th inning so it's getting really late and johnny wasn't afraid to have a cocktail or two uh after the ball games were over and, and uh, <laughs> a great guy a great pitching coach and a fun fun guy very funny guy and i knew he, i didn't know him from adam of course being from minnesota and, and not following the dodgers at all then as a kid but i remember he nudged me and said hey kid it's getting late it went out of here it's time for a cocktail so you step up to the plate and knock one out. Yeah. You can't write this story. <laughs> uh, I got lucky, I guess. No, it was a uh, pretty weird moment, of course. So again, I had all kinds of things, thoughts going through my head. But I remember when I got back in the dugout, Johnny looked at me and winked his eye. So way to go, kid. And then what a moment, well, I guess it would have been like a week or a few days later, when the great Yankee broadcaster Mel Allen immortalizes your first home run on an episode of This Week in Baseball. In the 12th, Kent found himself batting with the game tied at two all. George Frazier delivered, and so did Herbeck. Deep to right center, going, going, it's gone. How about that? A game-winning homer to beat the Yankees in his Major League debut. Now that is something to talk about. Congratulations, Kent. And see you next week, folks, on This Week in Baseball. So now you have one of the greatest broadcasters of all time narrate that incredible moment. And I imagine now you're pretty much best friends with Johnny Padres. Yeah, from then on, uh, I think I was one of Johnny Padres' favorite players at the time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> so when you first got called up in 81, you were living with your parents, I think. Were you sleeping in the same room that you grew up in? No, you know what? I actually uh, moved downstairs because mom had turned that into a den because I'd been gone for a couple of years. Yeah. But, uh, mom had turned into a den. And actually, Gary Gaetti uh, got called up that year and he actually came over. We were staying in mom and dad's basement for, for the last uh, month of the season. And describe the moment that you walk into Metropolitan Stadium, into the clubhouse. I mean, this is the ballpark of your youth, the one that you and your friends would uh, take a bike to. And now you're in the inner sanctum. What was that moment like when you first walked in? You know, trying to soak it all in, trying to figure out. I guess one thing I remember most, was, which was weird, was I remember there's a couple of pitchers or relief pitchers were sitting at their locker and there's a couple of guys smoking cigarettes. It was like, I walk into a clubhouse or I walk into a bar, you know, <laughs> didn't realize that these big leaguers are sitting there blowing eaters during their, you know, before the game started or whatever. That was kind of a weird situation but yeah it was it was really cool i knew i had a pile of people coming to the game that night i was trying to figure out the pass list and all that kind of stuff and of course you know jacked up to be home and playing in front of playing in front of a proud mom and dad was uh was the cool part about it and so by 82 the twins moved from metropolitan stadium into the metrodome i want to officially welcome the minnesota twins to their new home the hubert h humphrey metrodome I mean, turf has come a long way since then. But back in 82, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was like playing on concrete. And at, the, much. at the beginning of the Metrodome at 82, there's no air conditioning. So it's right. like a sweat box, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was hot. It was tough to see. You know, it was a football field. They built it for pretty much the uh, the Vikings at the time and decided, heck, we could squeeze a baseball field in there. Let's do that, too. And would they build a thing for $65 million or something? You can't even get a clubhouse built for $65 million now, a whole stadium for that. 
You talk a little bit about seeing balls off the roof, end of the lights. It's hard for Twins players, but how hard was it for visiting players to track balls against that roof yeah, and the lights? It was definitely, you, you had to do something different. I think my, my whole career I played there, and I believe me, I took plenty of pop-ups in practice, and that was one of the first things that some of the coaches would do right away. We'd start hitting pop-ups, you know, before batting practice would even start. We'd go out in there, and they'd hit pop-ups constantly. You had to track the ball the whole way uh, and keep your eye on it the whole way because uh, you weren't going to pick it back up. And I think I learned that, again, playing maybe in the neighborhood. <laughs> we used to hit tennis balls up in the air with a tennis racket because we could hit them a lot higher and a lot straighter up. We practiced that kind of stuff where we played there. We, we liked to do that kind of stuff. And, and I think uh, it was dreadful for the opposing team to come in there. And, and all of the players talk about the white ceiling. I mean, you would think that they would have it painted a different color. White on white belongs in shirts, not in <laughs> baseball against the ceiling. Because if you did it the old way, you know, you see a fly ball go up, you kind of get the, the angle that it's going at, you run to that spot, you look up, you find the ball and catch the ball. Well, at the Dome, you had to kind of keep your eye on the ball the whole way and get to the spot. So, like I said, I think in my whole career, I think I, I lost one ball in the Dome that I, did, I didn't see come down, where the other ones I, I pretty much kept an eye on. And, and uh, but believe me, if Puckett was here today to tell you, he, he lost a ton of balls out there in, in the outfield because uh, uh, there's a couple spots out there that were really terrible. And if a ball pop-up goes in foul territory but hits a light or hits something else or hits the roof and it bounces back in play. Right. Yeah, there was all kinds of goofy rules going on there. So, yeah, like I said, it wasn't a ballpark. It was a football stadium that they threw a baseball field in. And, but you know what? I had great memories there. Can't downplay the place at all because it was electric as heck. I was born in Ohio, but when I was five or six, we moved to Orlando. So my first taste of Major League Baseball was spring training games at Tinker Field. It was obvious from the time we arrived in camp at Tinker Field in Orlando, the Twins were not thinking pennant or thinking World Series, only of rebuilding, being respectable. What do you remember about Tinker Field? I love Tinker Field. Tinker Field was a fun little place to play uh, and it was warm. We'd come from Minnesota in, in February or, or March or whatever to go down there for spring training and it was warm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I remember it being hot, great place to hit. I loved hitting there, hitting the ball up into the Tangerine Bowl at the time it was called. Right behind it, yeah. It was where the double-A team played. That's where uh, Twins baseball was in Orlando, Florida. So uh, My favorite players on that team, that early 80s team, uh, you, Gaetti, John Castino. Man, I love John Castino. Johnny was an idol of mine. I love the way Johnny played. I keep in touch with Johnny yet to this day. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and the clubhouses, I think, were right under the grandstand. Is that right? At Tinker Field? Right. Down on, yeah, go through the dugout, and, and they were right underneath the stands. Yep. That's where I got my first autographs. I mean, as a kid, you know, we would just park ourselves right outside of the clubhouse because you'd have to come out of the clubhouse towards the concession area to get to the bus, I think. Right. Yep. I'm not certain if this was at the Old Met or the Metrodome, but can you tell me the story of Ron Davis and a cooler full of fish? Well, Ron Davis liked to fish, which a lot of guys in our team like to do back in the day. Yeah, he was out fishing one day before uh, before a game, and he uh, this was at the Dome. And uh, he had caught a bunch of fish and was running kind of late, I guess getting home so instead of going home he brought the cooler of fish to the clubhouse and went in the back started cleaning fish back in the <laughs> back in the kitchen area of the uh, of the clubhouse and what ray miller is the manager then right boy i don't know if it was ray or if it was billy gardner I okay but one whoever it was they were incensed that this was happening and banned fish from the clubhouse didn't they but you know what that's what the guys like to do that's how we kept ourselves loose 
I went duck hunting on Game 7 of the World Series because it was something I didn't want to change that uh, I'd been doing it in the past. And that's the way I, I used to go fishing a lot in the morning, too, before ball games to get out and get away and relax. And that's the way I felt prepared myself for the game or whatever. I could sure. think about it while I was out fishing or hunting or whatever I was doing. I put my mind at ease, and then I went to the ballpark and... And I put my uniform on and played the game. So that, that's how I uh, I tried to keep myself, uh, I guess, sane is what you could say. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long season. So in 1987, the Twins finished with 87 wins. And one thing I didn't realize about the team, you guys pulled a lot of pranks, I think, to keep the team loose, starting with Burt Blylevin. And I think he was famous for one particular type of prank. Was the shoelaces? Yeah, he used to like to burn people's shoelaces up. Yeah, he'd crawl underneath the, the dugout behind the guy's legs and crawl down underneath the bench and fire somebody up or whatever. Yeah, he was pretty good at that. <laughs> and then we also used to put shaving cream on the phone all the time. Hey, there's a phone call for you. And guy would answer the phone and have shaving cream all over his ear. And Tommy Bernaski, I remember, was holding... Uh, Bob Casey, who used to be the announcer, used to sit in that cubby hole right behind home plate. And the only way he could get out, well, he had to go out through the clubhouse, of course, or through the dugout. And there was a bathroom there in the dugout that sometimes he had to relieve himself during the game. So he'd quick run over there and jump into the bathroom. And Tommy Bernanski held the door shut on him and he couldn't get out to announce the first guy that was hitting the game that day because Tommy had him locked in the bathroom. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, just we did that kind of stuff. And Tom Kelly and uh, Ray Miller and Billy Gardner, they saw that's the way that we uh, that we kept ourselves loose and, you know, kept ourselves because it's a grind, as everybody knows. It's a yeah. grind. But we knew when the, when the game started and, and we got between the lines, Tommy wanted, to, wanted it all from us, so we tried to give it as much as we could. The first game of the 1987 ALCS was played at the Metrodome. The noise from the crowd specifically in that series was deafening. Boy, what a game to open this series, and what an atmosphere in Minneapolis. The Twins win game one, and in the fifth inning of game two, you come to the plate to face Jack Morris. Herbeck, the local boy. Every so often, Mom gives him some hitting instructions and tells him to be more aggressive. What do you remember about that at bat? The thing I remember most, and I think you could ask everybody that played on the team, was the electricity that was in that ballpark, uh, how much different it was from playing during the regular season to the to the playoffs. We had None of us had experienced it yet, and you could feel the noise. You couldn't hear nothing from the guys on the field at all. But you could feel the noise, and that was uh, what I remember most about it. One out, nobody on, last of the fifth. And this one has hit the deep left center. This one has got a chance. This one is... Gone. And we had to wait for the signal. And Herbeck wasn't sure himself, running hard as he approached second base. It's the sixth home run in two nights in this series. I can't remember who the bullpen coach was at the time, but I remember seeing a video of him with his foot on the phone because he couldn't hear it ring. He would just feel it ring. Yeah, that was Rich Delmazic, yeah, who yeah. we just lost. Was one of my coaches and their managers in the minor league, so I knew Stelly really well, was a great friend. And, yeah, he had 30-some years he put in a Twins uniform as a bullpen coach. They tried calling down to the bullpen one time, and nobody was picking up the phone. They thought the phones were broke, so somebody ran out of the dugout and looked down the left field line, and everybody's sitting down there, and they're hollering, hey, we're trying to call down to the bullpen. We need to get somebody up, and they couldn't hear the phone ring. So Stelly had to literally sit there with either his foot on the phone or, or lay his arm over the phone to, to feel it wiggle when it did ring. The Twins win the ALCS in five games, 
and then are set to face off against the Cardinals in the 87 World Series. The National League champion St. Louis Cardinals against the American League champion Minnesota Twins in the 1987 World Series. Now, just to set the stage here for just a minute, as a kid, you grew up watching the Twins. I mean, that was your team. Those backyard wiffle ball games with the Myers brothers, you guys were pretending to be, I'm sure, Tony Oliva, Harmon Killebrew, and Rod Carew hitting those game-winning home runs. And now here you are in a position to help the Minnesota Twins win their first championship. It was something I, you know, I wanted as a kid and never got to see. And now here I had hopefully something to do with helping out winning and get the, get the championship home to Minneapolis. Twins win the first two games, and then the Cardinals swept all three games in St. Louis. The series was coming back to the Dome for, I think, game six and seven. And in the bottom of the sixth, this would be in game six, you walk to the plate with the bases loaded. So here comes Daly to try to get Herbeck with the bases loaded and two out in the sixth. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. it's pretty tough to forget that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Herbeck, it's a high drive to deep center field. You know, it, it comes back to uh, you know, people ask you if you were nervous or what were you thinking. And, you know, I, I pretty much went to the plate every time with, with the thought to see the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball someplace hard. That's what my dad always told me. And uh, I had been struggling during the playoffs and, and the World Series and, and had a few hits that helped out the club. But I was struggling and uh, knew they were going to bring Daly in to face me. Looking fastball the first pitch and he threw it where I was swinging. And I wasn't nervous at all when I walked to the plate. Uh, I tell people that I, I have been more nervous one time here a few years back. I like the bowl. I still like the bowl, but I had a chance to get a 300. And when I walked up on that to throw that 12th ball and to shoot for a 300 game, I uh, I could hardly stand on the on the lanes that day. My knees were shaking so bad. But to walk into the batter's box with the bases loaded, a very important situation of the game. And I walked up there and I felt very at peace and very comfortable. And hit the ball 439 feet. Oh, by the way, just as an aside, did you get the 300? I left a 10 pin. <laughs> oh, shoot. Two, what, 299? 299, yeah. And then, of course, I called my buddy Timmy Laudner, who was on that team in 87. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he had bowled with us at one t- a couple times, too, and I was riding back from the bowling alley that day, and I called him up, and I said, hey, man, I just shot a 299. Can you believe it? I left a 10 pin. He says, you know what that tells me? I said, what? He says, there's room for improvement. <laughs> what a friend. What a friend. The Twins went on to win Game 6, 11-5. Jeff Reardon closed the door in the ninth of Game 7, and you were part of recording the final out. I think it was a ball hit to Gaetti, right? Right, yep. To Gaetti for the first time ever, the Minnesota Twins are the world champions. Did you think to hold on to that ball, by the way? Well, here's the funny thing. We won the pennant, or we won the West Division. I caught the last ball in Texas, and we celebrated. I, I kept the ball in my glove. I don't know how. And then we won in Detroit. The throw was to first base, and uh, Reardon threw the ball to me at first and to beat the uh, the Tigers, and I kept the ball in my glove for the whole time. And then uh, during the World Series, of course, the last game, Gaetti threw the ball to me, and during our celebration, I kept the ball in my glove. So I had all three baseballs caught at the end of each one of the clinching games. Literally uh, gave them all to Tom Kelly. He used to have them in his house, but now they're at Target Field in, in his little deal, all three baseballs that were caught to, to clinch each one of the uh, playoffs. They're sitting there up there by the press box in the uh, Delta Club section of the, of the Target Field, yeah. I think you've said in the past that Cleveland's Municipal Stadium had the worst clubhouse in the league with the worst spreads. Is that true? Everybody kind of said that. Wild Bill was the clubhouse guy. Best thing about Wild Bill, though, he always had nice cold beer. 
He had a keg right in the middle of the clubhouse, and a lot of times pizza was on the menu after the ball game, and it wasn't the accommodations they have now, but you know what? I enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it. We ate our pizza and drank our beer and had a good time in there, but yeah, you know, the clubhouses weren't fancy back then. Right now, I think the training room at Target Field is bigger than the clubhouse was at the Dome. There were some pretty small clubhouse. Yankee Stadium's clubhouse was very small, really low roof. I was surprised with that when I got there, uh, you know, my first game to the big leagues. Really a low roof in there, low ceiling, I mean, and small. We had Jerry Royce on at the end of season three of the podcast, and he talked about hitting his head, his forehead, coming <laughs> down the tunnel. <laughs> you just Right, yeah, a lot of guys bang their head. Even in Boston, Boston, you used to hit your head all the time on the ceiling. Still to this day, I think the dugouts are still the same. They haven't done a lot to them, but you got to watch your head in a few of those places uh, because they haven't done nothing with them. Detroit was the same way, but, you know, just really classic awesome ballparks that you know the, the guys that played you before you the the lk lines and the roos the garrigs ted williams all those people so those old ballparks were always special in my heart's playing so i do really quickly want to mention 1991 after taking the blue jays and the alcs the twins and the braves faced off in what some would consider the most electric world series ever played folks will never forget I'm sure Kirby Puckett's 11th inning home run in Game 6 or Jack Morris's shutout win in Game 7. But I think one of the great moments of the series, a real turning point, came in the top of the 8th in Game 7 when the Braves had the bases loaded and one out. Shit hit me a perfect ground ball for a double play. Bases loaded and one out. And what a huge double play this was for Herbeck, Harper, back to Herbeck. Yep, I threw it to Harper, and Harper threw it back to me. It was uh, one of those deals where, you know, you got to want the ball. People, again, ask you, were you nervous? We practiced that play in spring training a million times. I might have had two or three in my career home to first double plays, but you practiced them all the time in spring training. We never really really practiced them during the season, but you did it a million times in spring training. Yeah, I knew what I was supposed to do with the baseball when it got to me, and it was, you know, perfectly slow hit one hot ball to me and try to make a good throw and get back to first, and and Harper made a great throw back to me and, and got us definitely out of the jam. If that play's not made, or if the ball gets by you, or the throw gets by the catcher, that's a whole different game and a whole different series. There was so many different plays in that series that could have gone, not only for us, but for the Braves. They had a million chances themselves to blow games open and have some, you know, either made a great play, or ball was just fouled by a couple inches, or, you know, base running mistakes, or whatever, but uh, both teams had so many great chances to score runs. I've heard people explain, like, a couple of prize fighters just sitting there belting each other in the face, but nobody would go down. 50 million people watch Game 7. You know what, the way Jack was pitching and the way way Smolsey was pitching that night, you know, they both got themselves out of a couple jams, of course, but, you know, they, they didn't want to give the ball up. They wanted to, to take it to the end, which you won't see much of anymore, but it was quite the deal. I always told people I, I'd like to take a lawn chair and set it out at first base and sit there and watch it because I had a pretty good seat of watching both those guys, the way they competed that night and both teams competed that night. Really appreciate the time. You were one of my favorite players growing up, and so it's an honor honor to be able to talk to you. And I look back at your career and think, two rings for your hometown team. I mean, I played baseball in high school and and college and didn't even sniff the majors, but I can't imagine what it had been like to play for Cleveland, my hometown team. You got to do that and win two rings, and to me, it doesn't get any better than that. I wear my 87 ring every day and don't ever take it off, but to show people, and it's uh, a lot of hard work and dedication and fun, and and it's great to see the guys. The Twins have done a great job with with, uh, putting together 
alumni stuff for us guys. And I pinch myself every day when I when I look at that ring and say, well, you were a part of that. And just a small part, but a part. And was very, very honored and very humbled, very happy to be a member of the Minnesota Twins. Thanks so much, Herbie. Really appreciate the time. All the best to you and your family. All right. I appreciate that, Mike. You have a good one. How important is Kent Herbeck to the people of Minnesota? Well, the next time you're at Target Field, stop by Gate 14 and you'll find Kent Herbeck's statue, arms raised high, celebrating the last out of the 1987 World Series. There at Target Field, he joins Rod Carew, Tony Oliva, Kirby Puckett, and Harmon Killebrew, all Minnesota legends, and all immortalized in bronze at the Twins Ballpark. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Alex Kemp, Brian Bingert, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, John Carter, Kyle Schmidt, Mandy Zavlakis, Mike Lipinski, and Ryan Beer. Looking forward to joining you again soon for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.